I'd like to move on now to a more a general question about active asset management. Is the future now much better for human judgment, human skill, active management? There's been so much about robots and artificial intelligence and big data. Do you see this as an opportunity for really good active asset management and allocation to, 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 to thrive? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we will be in violent agreement with each other. Uh, well, then I think we need to, we need to, uh, you know, we need to, exp uh, we need to explain better why. And, and what you do, what, what do you might do about it, Ewan? Yeah, can, can, I, can I have a go? I mean, I, 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 I of course, agree. I think it is uh, an opportunity, but I think we also need to recognize that not all active managers have necessarily played a blinder going exactly. into this. So, um, given that um, you know it, it has had the level of economic impact that it's had, and um, and maybe some people saw it coming, I wouldn't pretend that that we did. Um, having said that, if you build portfolios that are highly diversified and you think about risk, even stuff that you didn't expect, you still won't have the same level of drawdown than if you've simply just been you know replicating market weights or doing something. Or, of that level of simplicity. And so one of the things, I think one of the problems that active managers have had in competing with passive over the last few years is obviously it's very attractively cheap. And since 2009 until now, it's been hard to argue that you'd have got a better outcome from a highly diversified risk managed portfolio because, um, you know, cheap beta has actually been a really successful strategy from 2009 through until the start of this year. I think now people might be more willing to accept that in certain circumstances, they were running with a lot more risk than they appreciated and that proper portfolio construction and risk management are the important Cinderella signs of fund management, as important as security selection and, uh, and getting your, 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 your views right. And so, my, my my hope is that I certainly feel there must be a lot of people who had maybe come out of defined benefit pension plans sitting with big DC pots that have been absolutely thumped because they had something that simply was inappropriate for a drawdown situation. And if we can do something about that, I think we'll help a lot of people. That's a good aim. Uh, anyone else like to come in on this? Thomas. You know, I'd agree with that. I think, I think it's all moving. There's, there's a couple things. One, certainly uh, active managers had the ability to react where if you were very long indices or other passives, unless you were just pulling out of the market, pulling out a loss. That said, I do think that the nature of active management is different by different asset classes. And so certainly um, in more liquid, more beta-driven markets, uh, it's harder to find that alpha than maybe in private markets where you're actually originating that alpha. So there is differences in markets that, that sustain active management. But I also think that even within the markets that may go back to uh, heavy reliance on uh, passive or index, you know, the future of active management in those may be a bit of how are we marrying you know, uh, quantitative overlays more in a solutions basis with our fundamental active management underneath. So I think it's moving towards that solution for a lot of investors, because you're right, they don't want to just allocate to that index and just say, 
above 20% in indexes and 10% in active, how do you really deliver you know, the, the beta cheaper as an active manager, but also get paid for delivering alpha in, 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 in the future? Okay. Um, I, I, one of the things that, that uh, has been very striking is that the technology companies, some of the technology giants that led the company, that led the bull market, you know, have continued to shine in the, uh, in the bear market. I'm thinking particularly Amazon, which is actually at a record high. Um, do, are, are any of you thinking more in terms of technology as an investment theme and the opportunities there and, and how the world is, 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 is really changing? And, and, and are, there, are there lessons about some of these tech giants like uh, Amazon and Microsoft, which, which you, know, uh, you know, we've learned even more about as a result of the crisis? Yes, Andrew. Yeah, no, I, I think in a, one of the comments made earlier about uh, decades happening in weeks um, is, is, is what we're seeing for a number of technologies. And, and there are going to be a, a number of companies, and we all, know, we all know who they are in terms of uh, delivering, whether it's Zoom technology or whether it's uh, delivering things to your doorstep um, or, or, or using technology for other disruptive purposes. Um, that those those trends are just ex have been accelerated by this by this process, um, and and they were trends that were already in place, but I think they've just they've just picked up. And um, so, slightly jumping back to your um, question yes. about management, particularly with it within stock picking, I'm not sure it's necessarily a, a watershed moment for active versus passive, but it will be a watershed moment potentially for for growth versus value uh, for 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 a period of time because there are a number of uh, value areas um, that um, are going to really struggle during this period, uh, which is not what you'd have expected in a, it, it, when a crisis hit, um, when there's been a, a long period of growth outperforming. Yes. So it's quite an unusual period we're going through, and it's obviously very early in, the, in it, but quite an unusual period for, for, for the growth versus value, and that's maybe the wrong way to describe it now. It's maybe old economy versus new economy. And, and as you said, some of the new economy uh, names have just carried on uh, getting stronger operationally and stronger in share price terms, whereas some of the older economy companies have got weaker yes. in operational terms and share price terms. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, uh, can you believe it's 20 years since the dot-com bubble burst in 2000? Uh, I think uh, David and then Jean, please. So the way, the way we see this playing out is very much uh, through the lens of the enormous rise in the importance of intangible assets. So while technology is maybe the best example of that, and certainly gets a lot of the press, um, we actually have for uh, the last seven or eight years seen an enormous growth in the investment uh, in, in intangibles. And whether or not this is in intellectual property, whether it's in brand, whether it's in software, um, these are the kind of assets that really matter more and more. And uh, at the same time, of course, we've seen a real decline in uh, classic kind of plant and equipment investments, which is, you know, people have wrung their hands over. Um, and yet the actual returns to those in general have been, been less. And so our expectation in this is that uh, actually the growth versus value piece will be less of a lens to look at it. Uh, the technology piece will be an example. But the real way to understand this is how intangible assets, which are not based on physical location, 
will enormously benefit uh, going forward uh, versus the old traditional uh, ways that we thought about investment. It also means we need to change how we think and measure investment and productivity to take that into consideration. Yeah, uh, Jean. Thank you. David. Yes, Jean. thank you. I'll make three observations going back to your comment, active versus passive, and in gradation of terms. First, in the immediate aftermath of this, I'd like to believe that what we saw in the ETF market in terms of dislocation, a discrepancies between liquidity of the ETF and the underlying the NAVs of the assets has brought some light on the shortcomings of passive investing. Are you, talking about, the, are you talking about the treasury ETF there? Not only that, frankly, there are numerous examples where there's been a decoupling of the, of the, of the liquidity of the, of the ETF and the underlying NAVs. Now, that has abated because of the stimulus that you saw coming from uh, the central banks. But for a time, there was really a, a discrepancy, a decoupling, and that, I think that demonstrated the shortcomings of some of the aspects of passive. Highlighting some of the shortcomings compared to some of the advantages of passive investing. Secondly, in the 12, 18, 24 months, we all turned off our economies pretty much at the same time when you think about Europe and, and the US, you know, with the discrepancy of a few, few weeks. The coming back on stream will vary a lot and will have varying degrees of normalcy, return to normalcy, depending on the sectors, depending on the geography, depending on the, on the damage done in the meantime. And I think there, more dispersion, therefore more analytical analysis required, therefore a chance for active asset managers to shine. Third, as you took long term, we're going to need to think through uh, new products, new strategies, because many of our clients now faced, in particular, uh, long-dated liabilities where fixed income is less relevant than it used to be, even where interest rates are. Now, you may speculate that inflation will go back up, and we're going to have a return to a different monetary environment. But for the time being, it's a challenging environment. I think there we have, again, a role to play in fourth, and maybe that's the bonus. Uh, I continue to believe, although there's a debate, I continue to believe that if you if you if you look at active asset managers, are we uh, are we not as a as a group best place to advance some of the ESG agenda that I think now public opinion believes is even more relevant than before. Well, well, uh, I was going to come on to ESG, and perhaps this is an opportunity to do it because we only have 20 minutes left. The, at the first CEO summit I did in March, there was more or less a uniform agreement that uh, ESG, responsible investing, and climate investing in relation to climate change would grow as a result of this. But then I did get a bit of kickback against that as well. One or two people said, um, look, you know, the main focus is going to be repairing the damage to the economy. And also, you know, are, are we really uh, going to start imposing new ESG targets on airline companies, for example, whose main focus is, are they going to survive rather than are they emitting too much carbon? So um, uh, it, it was talked about before, so I don't want to talk about it too much. But if you've got specific reasons why you think ESG and, uh, and climate change investing is going to grow, and maybe some examples of it, maybe you're seeing flows already into that, then... Uh, I think Nick's put his hand up and then yeah. and then name, because I know this is a specialist area for you. So and think, then Hanukkah. Um, thank you. I mean, I think um, from my perspective, we need to look at the catalysts. So you talked about kind of um, 
sentiment on a bottom, what I call on a bottom-up basis, uh, which is the groundswell of opinion from individuals, um, and we can't ignore that. But I, I, another key factor is regulation. Um, we've seen how much regulation drives behaviour, uh, and there's a very significant piece of regulation coming out of Brussels, specifically around responsible investing, which is going to be a huge catalyst for change. It is going to prompt um, institutional investors and retail investors to have to think about their approach to and their attitude towards responsible investing in ESG. And that will then drive through downstream right the way through the industry. So from my, from my perspective, yes, there are those, those subtle nuances uh, around, is it the right time to put pressure, more pressure on airlines, for example? But I think more broadly, what we're seeing is the regulators not backing away from wanting to, to address this. The way they're going to address it is by pushing the onus onto us as the product providers and to our clients to consider it and have to consider it. So from my perspective, there's absolutely both top down from a regulatory perspective and bottom up. And the active space is the space where we can deliver uh, against those two uh, dynamics to, to provide appropriate outcomes for our clients. Uh, okay, uh, Hanukkah, then Naeem, and then I'd like to bring Angus in on the EU regulation. Hanukkah. So I, 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 just following on from what Nick has said, what we think has been so interesting in this crisis uh, how much good we have actually seen emerge from aligning values to national and global interests. And if you actually think about the speed with which authorities around the world, policymakers, regulators, as well as companies, have acted to respond to both the economic as well as social costs of COVID-19, we can't help but think that if we can do this for a virus, surely we must be able to use this experience to tackle the bigger challenges that the planet and, and we all face, climate changes, climate change for sure uh, being one of those. So we believe very much that, like Nick said, that regulation will play its part, but also companies, uh, we believe, need to be true to their word and held, be held accountable by us as asset managers and asset owners for their actions by shareholders and also broader society. And this will come in the form of better targets, better disclosures, and again, through the ownership, um, us holding them accountable for their actions to get to a better world. Okay, thank you, Annika. Naeem, are you seeing flows into your ESG strategies? Yeah, definitely. Maybe I would like to take a step back, but to say that it's fair to say that for many years, we have missed the warning sign of what's happening to our planet in terms of climate change, social inequality, underfunded healthcare. And uh, today it's a real wake-up call for all of us. We have the catalyst and the silver lining to, to this crisis are the fact that we have a unique opportunity to change and to rethink our system, our society and economy. And here, as a, it's not, uh, we have an alignment of planets between the people who are saying never again the governments are empowered by the people to move and act again. And uh, the reality is they are moving fast with the rescue package at scale and businesses are responding positively. And if I go a step down and I see how active management can play a role in the banking system, clearly we have a role to play and it's our duty to play. First, we have to do it at the corporate level by practicing what we preach, leading by example, bridging the gap in education and in terms of management for our client 
engaging more actively, and this is where I see the active management moving forward, stewardship, and not only, and you cannot do it easily with the passive management. And the last and the most important point for me is we can finance the, finance the change through channeling capital from the financial market to the real economy. And we know that if we want to achieve the sustainable development goals, we need roughly 30 trillion in the coming 10 years. And with all the debt we have around, active management can play a role by moving part of the asset from the financial to infrastructure project, social project, and meeting the needs of the client through more inclusive and purpose in our investment. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, Angus, did you want to just uh, elaborate on that EU rule that's relevant, that I think Nick alluded to? Yeah, just, just um, very briefly, the way it's been explained to me, this is going to be a taxonomy of companies that uh, meet criteria defined by the EU as, as, um, as affecting some sort of positive uh, you know, climate change impact. And the, the feeling, so I've, my, special, my specialist area is the fund selected community. And I've been doing quite a lot of these virtual um, discussions with those guys over the last uh, two, three weeks. And um, this, this subject, subject has come up quite a lot the subject of these uh, EU regs. And, and there's a feeling amongst the fund selectors that uh, we will see, not to put too fine a point upon it, who's been swimming naked. Because uh, the, the feeling is that there'll be a lot of funds that are branded or promoted as ESG friendly or sustainable that are going to end up having, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of their assets qualifying uh, under this EU taxonomy, which is is uh, is is quite a big difference to the way they're being promoted. Okay, uh, time. Thank you, Angus. T time is. Oh, uh, Andrew. Yes, come in. Thanks, Lawrence. Now, uh, we're sort of assuming that ESG is going to happen because of our asset allocation, or because it flows into our funds, or because of government regulation. But to to a large extent, it's going to happen because of individuals' choices and, and, and what the demand from, from consumers. And as that shifts, and I think there's a perfect example um, of that, it, it's going to become much less socially acceptable to jump on a plane or to jump in an in a internal combustion engine car in the future than, than, than it was in the past. And, and that will drive the change at, at the corporate level, and that will drive investment returns um, and so this will this this will happen. Um, I think that we're all agreeing it's going to happen um, faster or slower, but to a large extent driven by consumer preference rather than investor preference. But uh, uh, yes, go on, Ewan. Yeah, I was just, I was just uh, I agree with all of that. I was just going to make one point, which maybe just uh, I mean I think the environmental aspect of ESG hasn't gone away. I think it's a, it's a bandwagon that isn't, isn't going to stop. And, um, and I, I, I don't think COVID-19 has made any difference to that. I think what COVID-19 has changed, though, is the S. It's the social side. Because while I think this, this uh, crisis has brought a lot of us together, um, to simply say we're all in this together isn't quite true. Uh, it's brought out the societal differences. And, uh, and even, I'm sure, like many of my fellow panellists, I'm acutely aware that self, you know, and I'm not self-isolating in any way beyond what everybody else is in terms of staying in my own home. 
but for me, it's a very different experience for, for many of my staff who are in smaller homes with kids who are out of school in the background. And, um, and, and I do think that um, co companies that have built their wealth on the gig economy and the exploitation of cheap labour and what have you, I think are going to be held to really hard account uh, as we move out of this. And how people treat their staff and their customers and how they did treat them during this crisis yeah. is yeah. going to be really important. Mm -hmm.